I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Today on First Lady and Friends, I had Brittany Cummins. She's the Senior Advisor of Education to Governor Cox. She is someone who I deeply admire. She's brilliant. She has such a great depth of knowledge about the education system here in the state, and she is really powerful and doing some really important work in this space. Uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation like I did. Let's get proximate. Welcome back to this episode of First Lady and Friends. We are so happy to have a guest that has become a dear friend and someone that I really admire in in leadership in the, in the state. Her name is Brittany Cummins. She is the Senior Advisor of Education for uh, Governor Cox, my husband. And uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. We're so, so excited to have you here. And we share a passion for education and... Um, Let's just, I'll just give a little background. You, you, you went to BYU, um, in, and graduated in secondary education, biology, correct? Yeah. And then you've been on the state board of education and you were the vice chair for four years on the state board. So such a, such a cool story. And, um, but let's, let's go way back to, to where you grew up, um, and a little bit about your family. Okay. Um, well, my dad was in the military for a few years when I was super young. Uh, so we moved around a little bit, lived out of the country a few times when I was super little. All of my preschool and kindergarten memories are in England. And then we moved to California for a little bit. And then my dad left the military and we moved to a small town in Idaho. So my dad grew up in Rigby. And so Salmon, Idaho was kind of close to home for him. And so um, that's where I grew up. Lovely little town out in the middle of nowhere, really. <laughs> and so, but it, w- it was a beautiful place to grow up. Um, a lot of cattle ranching, a lot of tourism. There's a beautiful river, the River of No Return that flows through there, the Salmon River. And a lot of people come to town to float um, and ride the rapids through there. But it's a beautiful place to grow up. Mm, I love it. It's it's and Rigby's up there. So the tourism comes from the Tetons, right? It's on the backside. Of yeah. The- so Rigby and Salmon are probably about three hours apart. So yeah, Rigby is where he grew up. Okay. Um, all of his family is in the Rigby Rexburg area. Salmon is a little bit farther west and north, closer to the Montana border, oh, okay. south of Missoula area. So. It's it's a little bit away from where he grew up, but he was able to buy a practice. He was an optometrist, and he was able to buy a practice up there. and So that's where we landed. Wow. So was that what he was doing in the military? Yeah. So he used the military um, as an opportunity to help pay for his, his professional education. And so he they helped pay for his tuition, and he owed them a few years of his life. And so it was, it was I think, a good experience for our family. Mm. Well, yeah. Tell me a little bit more about growing up in, or you know, your early years in England. What do you remember, and what are maybe some of the differences that you see here in your school experience there, and what you're seeing here? 
Yeah, well, we lived on base, um, but we did have some associations with uh, families off base as well. Um, so on base, it was just like a children's delight. There's kids everywhere, parks everywhere. You know, just we just played and had a lot of fun um, together as we just swarmed the base as a group of kids, I guess. Um, but we had we had a lot of fun growing up there. A lot of my memories, we did uh, tour around a, a lot. Um, we got to see. Uh, some cool things in England. I mean, from a, a, a small child's perspective, you know, the fascinating, seeing some of those fascinating sites, like, you know, the guards around the palace in, in London, you know, the ducks, the rain, the forests. Um, uh, we spent a little bit of time in Germany and just fascinated by the castles and, and just, just felt like it was foggy all the time. <laughs> but, but it was just so, so, such a beautiful time in my life. Just a lot of uh, fun memories of growing up around a lot of kids and, and just really enjoying that, that time. When did you, how old were you when you, when you left? Um, I was about eight when we settled in Salmon, oh, okay. Idaho. So. Okay. So it was your pretty, pretty little-ish pretty years. Pretty little-ish years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's amazing. Have you been back since? And no. I oh, you haven't. haven't? No. Oh, okay. No. Well, I I I know when we went to England a, a few years ago, it was it felt like it felt like home. I I mean, it's Europe, but it was it felt home because of so much of my ancestors are from England and it just I I just loved it. I of course, in my Jane Austen fascination, and so I had to go to Bath and <laughs> all those fun oh, things. No, but it's yeah, beautiful. we loved we loved our time and just a little short time we yeah. spent there. The smell um, of fish and chips and malt vinegar in the back of the car is a memory that will stick still... with me forever. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. Oh, that's that's amazing. Um, so let's. So let's talk about your journey to education. Why why education? What what inspired you? Were there educators, were there teachers in your life that that inspired you or family members that that led you to to become a teacher? I of course. I, I think <laughs> in everyone's every teacher's life there's an amazing teacher that led him there. And I had several um, my second grade teacher when we moved uh, to Salmon, Miss Wilfong, was just a, a Try, you know, as second grader, sometimes, you, you know, you feel like you're not important. But we had the most amazing second grade teacher who treated us with a great deal of respect and trust. And I just really appreciated the relationship that I was able to build with her. Um, I had a great fifth grade teacher, Ms. Lim, and, you know, Mr. Miller, my, my senior um, English teacher, uh, was fantastic and and trusted us to have some important conversations in, in a very small class, a small town. Sometimes you end up in classes with five or six people, but it, it was just a delightful um, place to live. And education was just meant a lot to me as I saw um, what you could learn and what you could experience in a classroom. And I, I just love hanging out with teenagers. <laughs> They're just delightful humans. And it's just a great place to be in a, in a high school classroom. So. Yeah, I remember, I remember my, our, and I've probably said this before, but our, my, when I say our, I mean, Spencer and I, our English teacher in high school was very um, influential to us as well. And he would say, cause he was a, a PhD, he could have been teaching at any university and he chose to teach high school. And I remember him saying, well, 
I just really like high school kids because they're almost like real people. <laughs> right. So I, I feel that now that I've had high school kids. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think those, those, those teachers are so influential at our conference. I think one of the funnest things we did that people really enjoyed was we had stickers and it said, you know, this is the teacher who influenced me and they, we wore those, you know, teachers wore those all day. Everybody who was at the conference wore those all day, um, to talk about the teachers who had inspired them, who had changed their lives. And, you know, I've talked a lot about my mom and my grandma and, you know, the teachers in my life. And I I just, it's, it's powerful. And I think, so let's, let's talk a little bit about what teachers, what you're seeing now, what your experience was as a teacher, um, and, and maybe the, the tricky parts of, of being an educator. Yeah. Um, I think the the fun parts about being an educator are really the relationships that you're able to to develop with with students. I mean, most students have a desire to to be there for some reason or another or to connect. And so it's just finding those opportunities. Why are you here? What are you trying to uh, find here? You know, what is your purpose? What are your goals? And and those are great opportunities just to engage with students and, and help them through that process as, as they as they figure their own life out and, and as they um, work through their own uh, trials and, and things that, that are difficult for them. And so that, I think, is the most rewarding part. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges is, is helping to connect what you're trying to accomplish in a classroom to Um, those students in all of that, you know, commotion that they experience, helping them to see that it's relevant and that it might matter or, or being willing to adjust as a teacher when you realize that maybe this isn't relevant or maybe it doesn't matter, you know, really, really being able to listen and understand where students are and, and finding that sweet spot where this matters and here's how we can connect you to that and how you can connect it to your future. And so it's, it's a fun uh, experience, um, but it is challenging, especially, you know, if, if um, you don't feel like you have the time to really adjust or, or to find those places to connect. What are you seeing now with, with educators? Um, you're, you're in the schools all the time. You're speaking with educators They're You're listening to educators. Um, what's, What's the general feel that you're getting from educators and what they're experiencing in this climate? Yeah, I think it's it's mixed. Their um, teachers become teachers for a reason. And so they, um, for the most part, most teachers start the school year filled with optimism and excitement. And they're, you know, they're there because they want to be there for the most part. I do think there is uh, some struggles as well where teachers are feeling tired uh, discouraged, um, unheard, uh, um, underappreciated, possibly both um, from you know the supports that are available to them, as well as um, how it feels to to have the time to truly adjust and to do the job that they like to do. But I, but I do think it's mixed. There is it's that that happy mess of optimism, excitement, and fatigue and weariness all together. Yeah, I think that's that's generally what I'm hearing too from from the the teachers that I've been listening to um I what let's talk a little bit about what your um 
maybe what how we sort of address some of these issues with the teachers that, that that they're facing what are what are some things that policymakers or or those of us that maybe are hoping to help teachers what what do you think are the most um, valuable things that we can do hmm. that's a good question um I think part of it is is the listening piece. You know, what are teachers experiencing? What are um, the struggles that they're facing individually and collectively? Um, and, and what does that look like? Um, education policy is a interesting. Um, I don't know what the right word is. It's it's messy. Yes. <laughs> um, because there's a lot of people involved in it, and we don't, as a state, or I think as a nation as a whole, um, we've never really set a good idea of expectation. What is it that we're trying to accomplish Mm -hmm. together? Um, And so in, in a little bit of that policymaking, you just have um, lots of ideas, lots of things popping up from lots of different directions. So you have a teacher that um, is in a classroom who knows why they're there and why they want to be there, but the expectations of what they're trying to accomplish from, you know, the policy side is, is can be unclear. Mm -hmm. Um, and difficult to interpret um, as things move forward. And so I think um, as policymakers, part of what we can do is is to step back, uh, slow down, listen, and, and go through the difficult work of, of setting a, an expectation of what it is that we want to accomplish and what we can do uh, to make that happen step by step. You know, collectively, what are what are our roles? What what are we each individually doing, and how do we have influence on that? It's a it's a hard task. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I don't know if it's possible, but every once in a while, I'm like, we can do this. Yeah, <laughs> I, well, it is hard, and and we it's messy. It's a human endeavor. Mm-hmm. Every, anytime you're trying to shape and mold lives and and give opportunities to kids to learn and grow, I, I, it's just going to be messy because kids come. You know, a hundred kids are going to come with a hundred different ways to learn and and previous experiences, and and so it, it's tough. But they also you have so many hands in the pot, <laughs> so many cooks in the kitchen. I don't know what what metaphor to use, but there's there's a lot of philosophies too about um, you know we for the most part we're a state that believes in local control and. When we believe in local control, we actually have to let people control things locally, even though there's a lot of pressures to to do otherwise. But also there's uh, all politics used to be local. Now all politics is national. So you have a teacher who, you know, is doing their thing, is is, you know, getting directive from from their local school board about the curriculum and what they've decided to do in the school district and how it's all going to work together and they have an expectation and then all of a sudden you have a, a parent or a group that comes in and says well this happened in Virginia I'm sure it's happening here you know right. how do how are teachers and and policymakers handling this uh, I think it, it's been a, a very recent challenge that I, I don't know that we figured out how to handle it because um, there I think all sides in this, you know, I, I don't know if sides is the right word, but we use it often, like we all pick sides or we're on divergent sides. But all of us, um, as the more people I talk to, people have a, a 
love for their children, right? And teachers have a love for their students. And how we come together and and see each other from from that perspective, I think, is going to be integral to it. Um, Most of the time when people come out at it, you know, very politically and upset, they usually have good intentions at the root. And so it's how do we just like get to the root of of what we're trying to talk about uh, in very deliberate ways, I think can help us solve this so that we don't all just get to our corners, ready, come out, you know, boxing gloves on, ready to fight, but really talk about what what is our intent and what are we trying to accomplish? Yeah, I think you're, you're spot on with the, the idea of, I mean, parents and, and teachers because they, they do love their students. I think parents are so emotionally invested in their children that sometimes emotions uh, rise to the top and and that's not all bad but we but it's it sometimes can overshadow maybe some some logic and reasoning um i know i've i've felt that as a parent too sometimes you'd lose your mind right because you just have these powerful emotions for your for your children and and for their well-being so um when we come right back i want to continue this conversation and especially talk about your work on the state school board we'll be right back a gun in the face then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up they pointed their guns at me and this is the point where i thought i'm gonna die today started two years of horror for an american in venezuela they said you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back here with Brittany Cummins, the Senior Advisor of Education in the Cox Administration. And I wanted, you served on the state school board. And my, I want to talk about this because I think people do not understand, first of all, what the state school board does, what's its purpose, how it governs, and how it influences um, education in the state, and also how you get elected. And um, I, I would challenge anyone that is listening, anyone out there, to tell me if you know who your state school board representative is. I would guarantee that a very small fraction of people in the state knew, know who their state school board rep is. And because of that, I mean, everybody knows who the governor is. Everybody knows who, you know, they're not everybody, but a lot of people know who their representative is in, in, you know, Congress and the state or the U S Senate. People very rarely know their local elected officials, including the state school board and especially the state school board because they make really big decisions about education. And yet sometimes we don't feel like they're held accountable because you don't know who they are. People are yelling at the governor, but the dirty little secret is he really has little to do with education in the state for, because of, um, because of the Utah uh, constitution. 
So tell me a little bit. First of all, why don't you explain a little bit the state constitution and why that is and what, how it's set up. And then let's talk a little bit about what that state school board function is. Okay. So in the constitution, it puts general control and supervision over the, of education under the state school board. Um, and that's a maybe a debatable sentence of what general control and supervision means, but it's it ends up being a very uh, uh, collaborative effort between the state legislature and the state board of education in um, looking at policy. Um, the legislature has the uh, appropriations authority, and so they go through the, the difficult process of appropriating funds to all state agencies, uh, including the state board of education and all of the local education agencies or school districts that exist across the state. Um, and so it, it is a little bit of shared governance uh, in that sense. But th- there's a little bit of tension as everyone tries to figure out their role uh, and what that means. And so, you know, and, and you mentioned earlier local control. We also have uh, locally elected uh, district board members as well that serve uh, as a governance role in their local districts as well. So it is quite complex. Um, and uh, but there's some there's some good things that happen in that area where local boards are able to set policy um, locally for things. They're the hiring entity. So they they hire teachers, they set their salaries, they they uh, work with their teachers around what what they're going to accomplish and how they're going to get their um, the state board of education um, is is asked with asked to set the academic standards for uh, what we're trying to accomplish across the state. And that's it's a challenge, and and I would say it's probably one of the areas of state board work that gets a, a good amount of feedback um, at, from constituents across the state, as well as educators uh, sharing their input as well. But it's it's a it's actually a fun part of the job as well as is. Really looking at what are, what are we setting as our academic standards across the state? What do we um, expect um, students to learn and to engage in? What are, what should their experience generally look like as they engage in Utah schools? Um, and then you know we get back to that local control, and so local districts decide how they're going to implement it. But the setting that standard expectation across the state of of what we should be accomplishing as a state is probably one of the biggest roles. Um, the State Board of Education also um, has uh, the licensing authority for, for teachers across the state, which um, so they set the rules for licensing. Um, and that's uh, we were able to update those rules a couple of years ago in a way that, that helped um, to create better pathways for individuals who want to teach to get into the teaching profession. Um, we were hoping to get towards a more competency-based uh, way of thinking about teaching. So show that you know, um, come and be a part of this, uh, show what you know, and, and be a part of the process, get hired, um, and, and get the training that you need as you move on. And, and I think that was a really positive opportunity in our state to really look at um, our licensing efforts. Um, and so there's there's some fun things. And then, and then every time a policy is written at the the legislative level, the state board of education usually has the responsibility to uh, write the rule uh, that implements that that policy or program that was created at the legislative level. And so, for you know, people that enjoy just reading policy, it's kind of fun. <laughs> for those that don't, it gets really boring and long. But but I, I really enjoyed that time working on policy and being able to discuss it 
Um, it's, <clears throat> I think the State Board of Education did a good job of, of trying to open up their meetings as much as possible to get feedback. What, you know, if we go this route with this policy, what is that going to look like, feel like um, in a classroom, uh, in a in a district setting, et cetera. And so really trying to get the feedback and, and also from families, you know, what does that feel like for you and your students experience in a classroom and, and how can we change it or make it better? And so that's the, the general work of the board. Um, and, 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 and I think similar, you know, you said sometimes the, um, People come to the governor. Why aren't you doing anything? Um, the same thing happens at the state board level where, you know, because governance is so complex in our state, you know, a lot of times you hear from constituents um, as an elected official, why aren't you doing this? And it's hard. It's hard to turn around and say, well, because it's not our role. <laughs> I mean, because it, it feels really flat to say that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's finding ways to, to say, OK, you know, here's how we govern education in our state. Here's how I can help you. Maybe something we can do or change at the state level, but but helping people find and navigate um, the right person to talk to in our state is always a challenge, I think, for every level within that governance structure. Yeah, government is complex. And, and <laughs> as much as we like small government, it's... <laughs> It's really tricky to to get the things done that you need to have the the procedures in place, but also make it consumer friendly, right? And make you know allow people to have a voice in their in the way things are done, right? And what I see too is sometimes really loud and and organized people have a have a strong voice, whereas sometimes that's not always the majority. And that's that's really tricky. I think legislature legislators get that they get, you know, a real. That's why I always encourage people to 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 speak to their legislators. Just you don't even have to be. It would be preferred if you're not angry. You have to just <laughs> allow them to know um, that there is, you know, maybe a majority that feels differently than than the loud minority. Right. And sometimes as, you know, in a position where you're elected to be there, um, different pockets of the state are um, are more politically involved than others. And mm-hmm. I found myself in a very quiet uh, district. Other, uh, you know, my board members that I would talk to, they'd be like, oh, what do you do with the millions of emails and phone calls that you get? I'm like, I don't know. I don't hear from that many people. <laughs> and so so sometimes I'd have to make an effort to reach out to people in my neighborhood, in my community, to really say, you know, what is it that you think about this topic? How how do you feel about it? Because, you know, there, there are pockets of... Um, of voices uh, that that oftentimes are, are louder and you know and and have have made more of an effort to hear have their voice heard and so I think sometimes it's important to just say okay what who who else is out there um, yeah. and what is their thought what is their opinion and and how do they feel about these policies or context so that's that's such a great thought and and actually us as you know elected officials or, or people that are in these positions to reach out to people that maybe are quieter, but there it doesn't mean that they don't have really valid opinions. Right. Um, you said something I want to kind of go back to. You said something um, about local school boards that they are set. They set the salaries. Now, in education, a big thing in the state is you know the the you know we're the least per pupil spending, you know all this stuff, and 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 the salaries are an issue. And I get that from educators all the time. And um, 
I want to go back to that idea of who sets those salaries. You you said the local school board. I mean, there's a lot. Again, just like everything else, it's it's complex. Um, but let's just maybe talk a little bit about how that works. Right. So a local education agency or an LEA, we, that's the term we use to describe a school district or a, a local charter school. So they're the individual entity that has governance over you know their local education area. And so um, they they are the employer and they receive money um, through the state and through local uh, taxes as well. So it's a combination of local, uh, state and federal taxes that kind of make up the pot of money that an education agency has to work with. But they they, um, have different things to consider in, in every uh, area of our state, how much their benefits cost, um, what is the cost of living in the community in which they they live, uh, what their economies of scale are, you know, as far as numbers of students within that local education agency. So we've got large districts with thousands of students and small districts with hundreds, maybe less than hundreds of students, right? And so so each of them um, has to figure out how to balance their their budget. And part of that is, you know, how they they move forward with salaries uh, of their educators. Um, and, and it's addressing the, the local needs. Some school districts are able to to recruit easily um, because they live in, in high population density areas. And some of our school districts are way out in the corners of our state where they're actually competing with other states um, uh, and their salary scales. And so so it is very complex. Um, I, I wish it was simpler. I wish it was easy to answer that. But but each school district really has to adjust right their their inflationary costs, everything else that, that they're working with in order to, to figure out how best uh, to pay their teachers. I think most districts, I haven't met a district yet that doesn't prioritize uh, teacher pay um, as their top priority as making that happen each year um, as increases come through is often the challenge and what that looks like. So mm. so if you had a magic wand, <laughs> I listened to a oh. Ma- Malcolm Gladwell <laughs> podcast the other day about magic wand, which was really great. If you had a magic wand, um, how, what do you think um, teacher salaries, I mean, if we could just wave a magic wand and this is what we should set them out. What What do you think that they should be? Well, I think um, a, a living wage, like yeah. a you. Sh- you know, we have a lot of opportunities in our state to to earn money uh, to engage in our economy. We are like on fire. Our economy is yeah. on fire right now. Um, but there's a lot of uh, occupations where um, the market doesn't drive the salary and education is one of those. And so it's it's stagnant in times when other areas are, are inflating. And so if I had a magic wand, I, I would allow the market to play a, a role in how teacher salaries are set so that they could be influenced uh, more directionally like other occupations in, in our state are. Very good. That's a great answer. <laughs> I know we're trying to increase. We're always trying to make sure that we set that bar a little higher. Um, when We need to take a break, but when we come right back, I want to talk more about this idea that you mentioned of sort of equity between the school districts throughout the state, and we'll do that when we come right back. We're back here with Brittany Cummins, Senior Advisor for Education um, for the Cox Administration, and just – 
really want to dive back into this issue, and and it was sort of a campaign issue for for us as we talked about education throughout the state. But this idea of equity between the school districts, it's really tough because you have a a district like – Summit where you have, you know, Park City and and just a really high tax base and and people that are 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 able to, you know, and again, with the tax structure that the state gives the the, you know, equitable money for for each district. Correct. Correct. Yeah. But it's those it's those individual districts that are able to tax at different rates and and have different taxing pools and. Resources. I mean, if you, you know, homes in Park City are going to be taxed at a much different level than homes in Fairview or, you know, Salina. So how do you, how, how have we tried to sort of rectify that and, and is it working? Right. So there's a couple of issues and I wish I was as smart as some people in the state and could explain it clearly, <laughs> but education funding formulas are quite complex, but um, I think you explained it well that we do have um, kind of a state formula that sends out money on a weighted per pupil unit. Um, and that's um, seen across the nation as a very equitable uh, form of, of sending money out. But one of the things that you run into, even with that equitable formula, is that you have issues with economies of scale uh, so or lack of economies of scale. So if you send out a certain amount of money per student – then it goes a lot farther if you have thousands of students um, than it does if you have a few hundred students. And we mentioned that earlier, right? Um, trans- plus transportation costs that are higher in, in more remote districts across the state. And so even that equitable funding stream that we have doesn't necessarily feel resource equitable when you take into lacks of economies of scale across the state. And then on top of that, if you add that most of our rural districts across the state experience um, uh, property tax issues where they actually uh, put in more effort as far as a tax rate goes, but the the actual income that comes to the school districts is actually less than what you're going to have. And so Right. Well that and that's what I mean I think I saw and I, I could be getting this wrong, but I think South Sampete or Manti, that district was actually one of the highest uh, tax rates in the state for because I mean and yet they're they're not you know they don't have as much money as as um, other places and they're struggling to 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 pay teachers to do you know to have everything that they need and to 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 make sure that students have uh, you know technology all these things that we need to have and teacher salaries but they're their residents are actually being taxed at a higher rate, which is crazy. Right. And it's, and so there's been some efforts across the state um, called, it's called equalization, right? It's the idea of can the state use some of the state fund to guarantee a certain value mm-hmm. uh, on an, and on a tax increment. So so a lot of those efforts have been made, and there's been a significant amount of money over the last five years that have been added to those equalization efforts and have, have brought um, – there's this graph that you'll often see with all the districts in a row, highest to lowest, as far as like their, their ability to rate, generate tax, local tax revenue. And, and there's been some progress made in that area. Um, but – 
But it's it's really like anything. It's really expensive uh, to really make up the difference that exists uh, between certain districts in the state and others. And so it's it's how do we look at it? I think is the effort now of um, what what are the factors uh, that contribute to that disequilibrium across the state, and and how do we address those individual factors? And so um, there's been some opportunity over the last year to visit with school districts across the state to really hear about you know what it is that that is problematic. You know, one of the things that that came up are you know simple things like that. They have to pay co- um, referees more uh, than than you know uh, an urban district because they have to pay the travel cost for that referee, right? And so they're already kind of struggling to make you know athletic programs work and to be efficient, and they have to pay more for a referee to come to their town, right? So it's like you know it's and, and I know that sounds small, but you know it's 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 these types of things that build on top of each other, on top of each other over time that just make it very difficult for smaller districts in our, our state to just get ahead and, yeah. and to, to pull those things together. Um, so we've, we've talked to districts across the state about what are some of those individual factors um, that are influencing uh, your ability to, to make good things happen. And, and there are good things happen. I, I never want to say that um, that we aren't doing amazing things in our state across the state, but every district is is trying to make it work individually. And, and what can we do as a state to really help and support um, those things that make it difficult in different areas? Yeah. Well, that's, that's a lot of really wonky tax talk. Yes, I know. I, was like, <laughs> I don't really know how much for this <laughs> podcast, but so let's go back to, to maybe something I'm a little, little more comfortable with, but let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing with students and um, the emotional toll, the mental and emotional toll that, that maybe COVID has, has taken on students as well as educators and, and maybe what are some th- your of your thoughts of how to how to remedy some of this stuff or what are some policies or or some practices that we're trying to implement that help um boost our our students and their 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 social and emotional health right um i think utah is in a good place, generally speaking, right? Um, compared to some other states across the nation that were out of school much longer um, than states like Utah, I think was a blessing for the students and the teachers in our state. That being said, <laughs> it's still been a rough couple of years. And I think part of it has just been the uncertainty Um not knowing what to expect from day to day, uh, not knowing how things are going to change tomorrow, I think brought a lot of uncertainty and maybe a little bit of um, loss of trust um, between um, institutions and both students and parents and teachers. Does that make sense? I, yeah, I think yeah. there was just like, who who's the big kid in the room or who's yeah. the adult in the room, right? And, yeah. and so I think there was a little bit of, of trust that was lost. And so I think... At some point, and I, I think there's a lot of progress being made as we as we move into a, a more optimistic time uh, that that we just reset those expectations. What are we trying to accomplish here as a school in our classroom? You know, as a state, as far as education goes, 
and really just working together, um, reconnecting again with with each other and and the purpose uh, around what we're trying to accomplish. Sorry, I know that sounds vague, but no, but it's it's uh, it's a hard it's yeah. a hard thing to 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 pin down, and I think we're still in the middle of it. We don't have the answers to it. Right. But I, I do think that uh, reconnecting is at the center of it, connecting around a purpose so that we can build uh, that trust again, that, that we're here for something. Uh, I don't know. From my own kids' perspective, I know this is very anecdotal, but from my own, it was a rough couple of years and, and part of it really was, why am I engaging in this anymore? Because it doesn't feel like it mattered, mm-hmm. matters as much as it used to. And so it's like, why does it matter? How do we reconnect with those kiddos and let them know that there is something, there's a purpose to this, and, and here's what it looks like? Yeah, I love that. What about this transition? We've I've talked about this a little bit where we feel like our students, you know, because of social media, because of COVID, because of a lot of the things that have gone on, we actually have students that have had 10,000 fewer social interactions by the time they graduate from high school or ready to go to college than, than say we did. What, what do you see as, as sort of that transition? How are we preparing our students for that transition out of K through 12 and into, into higher ed, whatever that looks like, whether that's a certificate program, whether that's, you know, a traditional university, what, what are you seeing in that? How are we, making that transition? Hmm. Uh, this is an exciting area of opportunity, I think, in our state. I mean, we we do some good things. Um, we have a, a strong higher ed program in our state uh, with um, low tuition comparatively. Um, and so uh, there's been a lot of focus recently on access and how do we increase access. There's a decent amount of scholarship money available in our state for students. And so I think we've got some good things happening and some good programs. And I think it's one of the most exciting places to, to do better. Mm. (laughs) Um, And and so um, I think there's an opportunity here to really look at um, what do those last two years of high school look like? Um, Are, do they feel relevant to every student? And if not, how do we bring in higher ed as a partner um, across that boundary so that we don't have a divide that we have to launch our kids across, Mm -hmm. but it's this seamless space in those last two years of high school where they're engaging with higher ed institutions, both degree granting and technical colleges where they're getting uh, experience. um, They're getting credit for the work that they're doing in high school that, that moves into, into college and uh, really um, smoothing those lines so that it's a, a student doesn't even notice the transition between high school and co- um, college, whatever that college uh, might look like, but, but they don't even notice it. They're just there. Um, yeah. and, and so I'm excited. There's a lot of um, work happening right now to help look at what are our current programs and how do we smooth those out to really make them work well for every student in our state, no matter where we live. Yeah, talk just briefly about the idea of the state school board put forth about the uh, portrait of a graduate. Um, this this is this is really kind of like you talked about the expectations. So what what is that kind of what's the overview of that? Yeah, the portrait of a graduate looks at a student more than just academically. Although academic mastery is part of the portrait of a graduate, right? 
Why yeah. do we go to school? Of course, <laughs> right? Uh, and so, but it also looks at a student um, more holistically and says, you know, what do they need? What skills do they need in order to be ready for uh, their transition into college and or the workforce, right? Communication, um, all, all of those things that are that you hear all the time are, you know, we have different names, durable skills, soft skills, you know, lifetime skills, but but those are, are part of what a graduate of high school needs to have. Can they communicate? Can they work in teams? Can they problem solve? Um, and so I think it's, it's recognizing that in order to be truly prepared for engagement, you have to have that ma- academic mastery, but you also have to be able to wield that, you know, that academic understanding in, in positive ways um, in order to accomplish and solve problems, accomplish things and solve problems. So. Yeah, and I think that's, I, I think we've heard from, you know, businesses and and employers throughout the state that say that you know we can teach a kid how to cope but we can't teach them how to work in a group right so i think those those are those are skills that we traditionally have maybe just assumed they were getting mm-hmm. and and now it's time to be a little bit more deliberate about you know how how they connect with somebody that's that's you know has a diverse opinion or a diverse uh point of view and how do we work with somebody like that? And and that's an amazing skill to have. And I, I hope my kids do have that skill right. when they're done. Yesterday, we were um, at the Catalyst Center down in Davis County School District. And, and it's a very deliberate effort from their teachers to not just say, you know, here's how to program this computer, but... Here's how you work with a client. Here's how you dress when you work with a client. Here's how you speak, you know, differently with your coworkers as to when you're uh, working with somebody else. Um, here's how we work as a team. They they have uh, scrum boards, you know, that are patterned after um, tech industry uh, ways of really getting together and project manage uh, things together as a team. And so I think you're right that it's it's more than just the academic skills, but it's how how do are they able to to implement them in a work environment that makes sense? So. It's so cool. Spencer couldn't stop talking about that mm-hmm. yesterday when he got home. He was telling me all about this this program and and the things they're doing up in Davis. So we would love for them to uh, share their knowledge and see if we can't um, do something throughout the state in the in a similar way and and have that's what's so fun about these school districts is they can they can share ideas and share. Um, uh, best practices and right. better practices and to see what each other's doing. And then we can replicate that in, in throughout the state. So every kid has that opportunity. Um, I think it's really interesting the way we are starting to look at education. I know that my mom was really uh, frustrated. She, she was a fifth grade teacher in, in an elementary in Mount Pleasant. And she said um, to me a long time ago, so this is, you know, in the, in the nineties, and she said, we are, we are mass producing education like we mass produce cars in this country. And this is in the 90s. And it was, you know, it has to, everything has to look the same. And I think that's changing now. I think her vision of having a really, a really individual experience for kids. I mean, I come from a special education background, so that was very individualized. Right. And, and in my opinion, I think every student should have an IEP that, that outlines <laughs> their individual um, education plan for their specific abilities and desires and, uh, you know, what what their dreams and hopes are. And I just think I think we're getting there. 
don't you think? I I do, and in fact, there's a lot of、um, emphasis on that right now.、Uh, just speaking yesterday as well with a group of people around how do we implement more student-centered learning? Right?、Uh, how did the if we put the student in the center? What are the policies that help to to move that student? What are the 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 teaching frameworks that help those students? Right. And so instead of thinking about teaching and curriculum in, in all these silos, put the student in the center, and and look at the the influence around them of of policy, governance, funding, and all of those things, and really driving that progress from a student centered、uh, piece and 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 their family and how they engage in that. So yeah. Yeah, it's it's. I think I think we're getting there. I I I feel very optimistic about where education is going, and I feel very optimistic about our incredible teachers and the people in this space that are just have such a big heart for for really helping children and students get what they need out of this experience as as their what will be their education for the rest of their lives. So thank you for yes, being a huge、you. part of that for the state.、Uh, we're we're so excited. Before we leave, before we shut it down here,、uh, I know you're a big reader. I'm a big reader. What are what's what have you been reading lately?、Mm, I don't know if you know, but I, we get book assignments from the governor on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about this last week, so、oh, I'm reading. <laughs> so we're probably reading the same book. The yeah, the warmth of many suns. I think it's、yeah. called. Yes. It's it's a fascinating book. It's big, and so it's going to take me a bit to to get through it.、But. I said to Spencer, I think I might be the only one that finishes this before. I don't, and I don't know if I will because it's big. But it's it's a it's a really good book. I've really enjoyed it. I think it's always important to to look at history from different perspectives and and from people's lived experience. But it's it's a beautifully written book, so I've enjoyed it so far. So. Yeah, I I feel the same. I I it's giving. I love. Hearing a new perspective and a new history that I wasn't aware of. Yeah, I realize every time I learn something new how much I don't know, how much I don't know about my own country's history,、mm-hmm. and it's I I love it. I love learning new things. One of my favorite books is called Killers of the Flower Moon, and it's a book about. The Osage Indians in Oklahoma and how they were, of course, put on this really barren, awful land, rocky, terrible place. But then, in the in just around the turn of the century, they discovered oil,、hmm. so they became some of the richest people in the world. And then there was this systematic murdering. These these Indians were being murdered. These Native Americans, and they were, and it was the whole story about the beginning of the FBI. It was one of the first FBI cases. It's a fascinating,、wow. fascinating story.、And、I'm like, how do I not know this? How do I not know anything about this? And I read that book. And I'm like, wow. So that's, it, I'm feeling the same way about this book.、Yeah. Um, is that I'm learning, like, how did I not know that millions of people migrated south? All these African American folks were moving. To the south or to the north and west,、mm-hmm. millions of them at this time. I had no idea. Like, I mean, I guess I did, but maybe I just didn't understand the stories in this way. And it's really interesting. So、yeah. I love stuff like that. Well, Brittany, this has been really fascinating, and and thank you again. You're you're brilliant. You're 
so articulate and and we're so lucky to have you um, at the head of our education system in the state. We just really appreciate everything you're doing. So thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be here today. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.